1: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you
2: enjoy the show.
1: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me, Alina, and I am flying solo today. So what I've got, I've got a very interesting gentleman for you today. I have Ian Marchant, who's a writer and historian. He's written titles such as Crypts, Caves and Tunnels of London, Men and Models, Parallel Lines, or Journey Through the Wayway of Dreams. But he's here to talk about his new book, one Fine Day, A Journey Through English Time. Hi, Ian. Welcome to History Hack.
2: Hello, Alina. Very pleased to be here.
1: I'm quite excited to get this going because we're going to go through quite... There's quite a lot we've got to get through. We've got about 30 to 40 minutes. I, uh, I'm i quite interested in learning a little bit more. So, you discover Tom Marchant. I mean, we have a connection here, am I correct?
2: No one, I don't know.
1: Same surname,
2: really? Is you? Oh, it's me. Oh, yeah, it's me. Yeah. Oh, you scared me then. Do we, I didn't know. Same surname. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't. don't cut the jokes, man. <laughs> so, let's let's
1: talk about Tom Marchant. There's yeah. got to be a connection there, hasn't there? Tell us, how did you discover him, and who was he?
2: He was my seven times great great grandfather. And my wife discovered him, really, um, knocking about on one of the well-known genealogy sites, Ancestry, in fact, finding out about my mother's family, which was very complicated. And she said, I've got a day left. Shall I find out about the Marchants? And we didn't know anything about the Marchants. My grandfather's father refused to talk about his family or where he was from. So we didn't know anything at all about where our family was from, except probably Surrey, uh, which turned out not to be true. And through, well, it took her about an hour on on, um, ancestry because it had interested genealogists enough. So suddenly we were back to the 14th century. Hold on, we've
1: gone back all the way to the 14th century?
2: Yeah, in the space of an hour. Because what happens is is that people who've done the work that far back, suddenly you, you sort of plug in to people who've done the work, um, whereas on my mother's side, no one had done the work, so it, it took my wife three months of, of digging in archives to find it. Suddenly, with this far back, and as a list of names back to my, I don't know, sort of 14th time's great-great-great-grandfather in, in Namur in Belgium, and And one of these was Thomas Marchant. They said, Thomas Marchant, diarist. So I'm like, diarist? We need diarists. We need diarists. So I googled Thomas Marchant, diarist, and he had kept a diary between 1714 and 1728. And what's more, a local history group in Sussex had transcribed it. That's incredible. Can I just say thank you? Thank you. And so, um, so I know, and I'm going to say this, and you're going to say what, and I'm going to say I don't know because I would neglect to look it up. (laughs) I know what my seven times great great grandfather was doing on this day 300 years ago.
1: I've got to say that's actually that's beyond incredible so question how long do his diaries span for? Is it a year two years three years
2: it's it's in fact it's fourteen years, but there's a couple of missing years um so it's from seventeen fourteen to seventeen twenty eight with a gap in in the middle from a, about seventeen twenty three to about seventeen twenty six where either a volume is missing or you know what it's like when you write a diary, you begin day one, went to school, day two, had dinner, day three, you don't write anything. Did he have a few years off, or have we lost a, a volume? So I so I had this transcript of his diary for about 14 years of his life. How is that not a book that's, when you're a writer? Well, yeah.
1: exactly. That is everything that you need to, to be able to work with it. I think that's that's amazing.
2: I love it. Thank you. And and because, and before that, the genealogy took us back to Belgium, uh, to Namur in Belgium. And I, I thought, well, what, you know, why did we, oh, I should say, Alina, that during the course of the thing, we became we. We became family. You, you know, well, He
1: is, he is your family at the end of the day. He's my
2: direct, absolutely, absolutely. He's my direct direct ancestor so i found out as well how we came to be in sussex as well from belgium what it was that that drew us to sussex that's
1: really interesting i admire that such things exist in family lines and especially for a writer i have the diaries of my great grandfather from the second world war so yeah. for me that's a gold mine that's everything i could quite easily which i'm hoping to do is to publish the direct sort of exact so i'm looking at the word in english testimonies as in documents that's the word i was looking for yeah so the exact documents just translated into english to be able to give other people an opportunity to be able to study it but i I think i'm gonna have to have a look at these diaries because they're online aren't they
2: you can buy them oh amazing yeah i know you don't do sort of video but 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 there it is. It's called A Fine Day in hurst Point, The Diary of Thomas Marchant, 1714-1728.
0: Oh, fabulous. Well, I,
2: I envy you because, as I say, we had completely lost contact with this history. We had no idea that where we were from. We had no idea that we were a gentry family. You know, we thought we were a load of Herberts, as, as we, you know, why are like, oh, I a oh, it all that, from Surrey?
1: Well, clearly yeah. not. And you've got yeah. to start speaking with that RP
2: accent, darling. I have, yes. So... Let's yes.
1: talk about this method here, which is—I'm assuming I'm going to pronounce it correctly—which is the Walloon method. Is that
2: correct? yes, it is. Yeah.
1: Okay, so tell us about the Walloon method. Method, what is it, and why is it so important to this narrative?
2: Okay. So, I, when I, at school, I did um, the Industrial Revolution for because I'm very old. I'm sixty-five tomorrow. <laughs> I'm just. I'm <laughs> such, <I'm> just <laughs> <laughs> I did O levels, right? I did O look, can you imagine O levels? And um we did the Industrial Revolution. And and the narrative is is that blast furnaces started in Shropshire in kind of 1709, something like that. And Abraham Derby I started using blast furnaces. What Abraham Derby did was start to use coke in blast furnaces blast furnaces had been in england for about 200 years before that since about 1490 between 1490 and 1500 and they've been brought over from wallonia which which is the french speaking part of belgium by a series of craftsmen who brought to england the walloon method of making iron which changes the world, changes the world profoundly because blast furnaces produce molten metal. Before blast furnaces, iron is made in what's called a bloomery. Um, And so you can only make it in small amounts. um, And it's difficult to make. And it's amazing that I've got a girlfriend, really, because I spent so much time on Facebook looking at films of people making iron in bloomeries.
1: (laughs) Listen, we all have our own quirks. Don't worry, you're not the only one.
2: Yeah, so I I kind of looked at this stuff, and people still do it and try to work out how it was done for thousands of years. Two or three thousand years it was made in small amounts in a bloomery. A blast furnace allows water-powered bellows to go to blast air in, into the blast furnace so that it runs molten. The Walloon method, which is, which is you know, give and take the sort of thing that we use now, put a hole in the side of the furnace called a heath, And from that, you could extract the slag or, as they say in EastEnders, slag. Oh yeah, the slag. You're a slag. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Funny enough, I was using that word the other day to try and explain it to an American, and it did not go down well.
2: Did it? No. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. So you could take the slag out, which means that for the first time, the blast furnace could run full time, and it was being made in Belgium. And the reason that about 300 families, including the the merchants, the demarchal as we were, were invited to England from about 1500 on was by Henry Seventh, and he invited us because we knew how to make immense amounts of molten iron, which is what you need to make cannon, pellets, cannonball. So, so we, if you like, were an immigrant family who came to England in about 1500 with this new method of making iron in order to arm the british state and and there are historians who say okay this is the opening moment of the industrial revolution in this country and the opening moment of the moment where england and you know it is an english thing england moves from being a largely self-sufficient country to being one that starts to export its goods and to enforce if you like, its power in the world, because suddenly it's joined the ranks of countries that have artillery and artillery weapon, which up until then would have been, you know, the Ottomans, the Burgundians, the French. Henry Seventh had seen cannon at work when he was in exile in Rouen, waiting to come back and give it to Richard Third before he was buried in the visitor car park at Leicester Cathedral. And and so that's why we came. We came as part of the arms trade. I love You're
1: this. You're welcome. <laughs> I no, I love this. It, your family has had, and and by the way, this is all happening just because your wife went on, on to genealogy and 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 worked in it for a few hours. Yeah. Where um, my mind is blown. Your family is part of this huge revolution, this huge action, this huge moving forward of of great britain
2: yes it'd be very you know but but we're really lucky we're what we can draw this line because of things like ancestry because the records were there because historians have been interested how many other families could say the same not very many no no but they don't know Ah, no that's true (laughs) do you know what i mean
1: that's very true no you're right because we found
2: out and and the other thing that of course i brought to it was you know m- m- my training as a historian and 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 the ability of a historian or at least the kind of historian i am to go hang on if a then b then c then d then e to be a generalist to draw that big picture so my my wife i i don't to give too much credit to my wife, Alina, for goodness sakes. You
1: have to give some credit to your wife. (laughs) She did all the
2: work. (laughs) (laughs) She she found out all the stuff. But you bring along as well that kind of wanting to make connections and to go, hang on, there's a kind of story. So actually people I was at school with, I was at school with a family called the Honeyballs, and um, lovely name, another of the families who, who came over. Uh, my my neighbour here in Mid Wales is a bloke called uh, Glenn Duggan, again, another of these 300 families. Uh, the bloke who runs the chemist here in the town where I live is is a bloke called John Bray. and uh, The Pas Bray is one of the places where this iron came from. So, so, in fact, there are quite a few names which, at least theoretically, were part of this 300 families who came to England from, you know, what was Burgundy in the early 1500s, not Huguenots, not religious persecution, invited to come to provide the arms trade.
1: (laughs) Hooray! The height of war, height of war. That's probably the wrong way of saying it, but at a point where arms were very much needed.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah
1: much nice way to say it. Okay yeah. so let's continue with the marchins because well this is where we're going anyway. They have their origins in the Ardennes. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: <laughs> so
1: Ooh, uh, that giggle that little laugh there.
2: <laughs> so I became very interested in deep history. Um so yeah I became really interested in deep Listen. What so, happens so,
1: is you yeah. you you find one thing, then you find another, then you find a rabbit hole, and then you find ten rabbit holes, and then you just disappear and you're gone.
2: Yeah, that's right. And so and so the deepest rabbit hole is uh, the great oxygenation event of what three point nine billion years ago. <laughs> I just drank a yeah.
1: cup of tea there out of my sip sorry. and I was going to spit that out. Yeah, I'm sorry. It made I... me
2: laugh. Yeah, I've got one here. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the iron was dissolved in water and then um, phyloplanktons start to produce oxygen. Which causes the iron to oxidise and to fall as iron ore to the, you know, to the bottom of the sea. And then another kind of X billion years go by. And and it's kind of land. And it's a huge mountain in the Ardennes, full of iron. And then all you have to do is wait another few million billion years. Not million billion. <laughs> a million sort
1: of billion, hundred million. <laughs> a, yeah,
2: million billion, hundred million. Another couple of hundred million. And so the Ardennes is full of iron. And so that's why, as kind of immigrants came into Europe, who already had some idea of iron working. You know, we're not sure for certain. You know, when iron working came into Europe, but probably about 800 BCE, something like that. They came to the Ardennes and they found that it contained the things that you need, iron ore and trees. So that's why we're in the Ardennes. That's how fascinated I got. By and I, it's, it was interesting. I thought that we, because we came to England for geological reasons, right? It was geology that formed us. So I took the opportunity to do that long durée thing and say, right, let's go back as far as we can do. L- let's look at the soil. Why does the soil produce us? It produces us because the soil is made of iron and. We are part of the iron making process in Wallonia, and uh, and so, yeah, I go back to the Ardennes, and I think, ooh, (laughs) we've been here for like millions and millions of years, sort of, even though that's nonsense, of course.
1: How did that moment feel for you?
2: Oh, it's it's mad, isn't it? It makes me realise that I'm a nutter, but but also, you know. I don't speak any French either. Once again, my remarkable wife does. And so my wife says in French, he's from here <laughs> 500 years ago. And before that, because of the iron, like millions of years. So, so, so it's become in, in my confused ancient old brain. Because I'm 65 tomorrow, as I may have said. <laughs> uh, Another place that that you sort of call home, so so that the idea of home, you know, spreads. Not just sort of like we are kind of little Englanders. This is, this is us. This is home. It begins to spread as an idea. You sort of think, okay, all right, no, it's not. It's the South of England, but yes, it's also the Ardennes. And there are reasons why it was the Ardennes.
1: I don't get how you feel, but I get how you feel just yeah. a tiny bit tiny yeah. bit because i can't say that my family regions go back for well a few thousand few hundred years actually rather than thousands of years and uh, there's a region of poland where everybody knows which is moduski Oko, which is Nezakopana, in the mountains and everybody goes hiking and it's beautiful but that actually those lands used to belong to my family way before the polish partition and when i tell people that those lands used to belong to my family that like, don't lie don't yeah. lie i'm like. Go online, go check the area, and it will tell you it belonged to the Novobielski family. Maybe not my direct line, but it still belonged to the Novobielski family. So I'm gonna run Listen, with that one.
2: Yeah. I mean what well, you know, why not? We we all have deep roots.
1: Yeah. And interesting. It's, and it, I wish we could I, I know that some of my friends have got really interesting family histories and we could probably deep in, deep in, dig in deeper to be able to find more of it. And what would we find? Some exciting yeah. stuff, I think. Yeah. So your next question, and Chris has underlined this to me very specifically. All right. Is that it's not Goring. It's not Goring. It's actually Goring. Goring. It's Goring. So General I'm gonna Goring. I'm gonna say it correctly. Yeah. So we have General Goring. Yeah. Talk to us what is this link? Because it's not the family name. Where does he come into this whole story?
2: Gen- General Goring was one of the most uh, dreadful human beings who ever lived.
1: Oh, so we have. Uh, he's probably on the same par as Goring anyway. So I might have
2: said <laughs> Goring. Oh no, no one's on a par with Goring. No, he's he's the Goring, but he was an awful man. He was vain. He was horrible. He was very like uh, UK Prime Minister, ex Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But I mean, really, and and his <laughs> contemporaries wrote about him in those sort of terms. Veins, the wrong sort of person to have power. And his family owned th- so we ended up in Hurstpier Point in Sussex, in a place called Little Park. And his family owned essentially Big Park and Little Park in Hurstpier Point. When we came over here, we rocked up, we ended up in Hurstphere Point, and it was owned by the Gorings. And they lost it in the English Civil War because they spaffed it up the wall, as Boris would say. He lost it on gambling, he lost, he just sort of gave it away. By the kind of end of the Civil War, he he'd lost everything. He'd, for example, he pretty much started the English Civil War. He was the person who fired the first shots, really, in in Portsmouth. He declared Portsmouth for the king in 1642. And everyone went, oh, right, we're having a war then. Oh, right, we'd better have a war. Including the king, going, oh, God, no, right, we're having a war. Oh, no, we're in a war. He he was a horrible, horrible man. Clarendon, Edmund Hyde, the great historian of the English Civil War, said he's, like, the worst guy I've ever met. but as a consequence of that, they lost everything. Meanwhile, the merchants, who as Im- weren't poor immigrants, you know, we were rich. We were well to do. We came with money. You know, the horrible sort of stuff about you've got all oh, you've got to have points. Oh, you can't come into England unless you've got the points. Have you got the points? Or you Did you have
1: in- all the points?
2: We had all the points because we had weapons technology. So by sort of 1665, we were rich enough to snap up at a bargain price, the land that the Goring family could no longer hold on to. Because they'd lost everything, because, because they were horrible. <laughs> I can <laughs> see
1: on... bitterness rising right now and envy and jealousy and all sorts of bad feelings.
2: I mean, I I think, they, I think they must have done, except that at the end of the Civil War, England returns kind of, in a way, to a Pacific country. You know, it becomes a place of peace. It becomes a place of peace, in a way, for the next, uh, you know, 100 years or so. You mu- and you can still see it now. England is this place where people go, oh, no, you know, we mustn't oh dear, no, we mustn't wind one another up too much because we've had a civil war. We came out of this civil war, which which was a kind of dreadful thing that tore the country apart. The (laughs) Marchants were one of the people who ended up doing all right. You know, another example in that part of the world would be the Burrell family, who now have Nepp Castle. Where they're doing this big rewilding project which which very Isabella Tree wrote a book called Wilding about Nepp Castle. That's a few miles away from Little Park Farm where we ended up. So there are loads of families in Sussex who managed to do all right out of the Civil War.
1: Okay, so we're gonna come back to literally the beginning. We're doing a bit of a circle right now. We're coming back then, to uh, to Tom Martin. Yeah, And tell us a little bit more about his diary. I'm assuming some of our listeners are going to go out, hopefully, because I know I am going to go out and buy his diary because he sounds already like an interesting chap.
2: No, but, you mustn't go and buy his diary. You must my, buy my book about his diary. Buy both. Much, oh, yeah, buy both, yeah.
1: Buy both. But my,
2: yeah, all right, both. <laughs> so
1: I would say for the deep historians, the super geeks,
2: yeah. get both. Yeah, all right. But for
1: people who are slightly less super geeky,
2: I would just your book. I think that will be enough.
1: (laughs) But I mean, so come back to this and tell us a bit about his diary. I mean, what was his life like? How does the changing world affect him? Because he is literally in that moment where the world is is changing.
2: He is. He starts his diary in October, seventeen fourteen, just after Queen Anne has come to the throne. It's a farm diary. Most diaries that were being kept at the time, you know, weren't for any sort of publication, nor did people share their emotional feelings in diaries. They were sharing their emotional feelings in writing, but in letters to one another. So so it's it's not a, you know, dear diary, I, I'm broken hearted. It's dear diary, we carried down today. And and made faggots, you know, bundles of wood, okay, to burn. A house like little farm would burn about two tons of wood, faggot wood a year, to heat the house. So, so that you know that's how they heated. It. What it is about is is very much an intimate account of the farming life. So I was able to to work out. Okay, this is how they dressed. This is how they smelt. Um, unfortunately, which isn't very nice. Um this is this is certainly what they drunk because he drinks like like a fish. He's a fish farmer. So I worked out what they did with their poo, um, how they cleaned their sewage, which was gave it to their fish, of course. Um
1: Hold and, on, hold on. Yeah? W- oh, wait, yeah. wait, I, wait. Yeah. Let I'm me just you. let me just understand that completely. Yes. Their sewage... Yes. ...they gave to the fish. That's right. Which then they would eat. That's the one. Okay, right. Just making sure I understood that.
2: You did, yeah. Okay. And we should still do that. It's a really, really green way to clean sewage and produce things like carp and tench and tilapia and things like that.
1: So the gross fish, basically.
2: Yeah. Yeah yeah
1: I mean uh, bottom feeding Polish. fish yeah, They're,
2: yeah bottom literally bottom feeding they
1: are literally yeah. bottom feeding fish who yeah. i know i- i don't and I only eat carp unless I'm forced to
2: yeah, I never have is it horrid
1: um it's unless you clean it properly in clean water, it tastes like river water, yeah. So, not a big fan. I am a fan of North Sea fish," says the person living in Poland, in the middle of the land, nowhere near the North
2: Sea. So, yeah. So, so, so I could work out, you know, that's how they. I, I worked out where their underpants came from because they grew flax, and I knew that they were growing flax for fibre because he says we pulled flax. If you cut flax, that's always for seed. If you pull flax, that's always for fibre. They're pulling flax, they're producing flax, they grew their own underpants. Um, And so it's those kind of day-to-day things that I was able to sort of work out. You have to bring historical knowledge. You know, that's, that's what historians are for, I think, is to say, not just this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But look, this happened... And that's why this happened. And that's why it's still interesting now.
1: I agree. I really agree. And you found minute details that we would not necessarily think about. So when we learn about the past, usually it's a king or a queen or the rich or someone scandalous, but you're digging into something of the everyday, more or less everyday type of person. How did they live? How did they sleep? Are you, like you said, they grew their own underpants, literally. Yeah, they did. And I'm very similar in this sense where I look at the what was the weather like? How did the weather affect this event? Was it rainy? Was it hot? Was it, you know, similar small details that just make the scene different? Interesting. Uh,
2: yeah. and so, And so every day in every entry in the diary, he writes what the weather was. So, so, so that's that's why the people who transcribed the diary called it another fine day. In a point, and in a way, my, why mine is called one fine day. But because he was writing when he was writing, so I'm able to say this is the moment in history where Fahrenheit is operating. So when he says it's a warm day, it's about the period that Fahrenheit. Has invented the mercury and glass thermometer and come up with his scale. This is the first moment in human history where we can say, okay, someone in London would have been keeping record of that and would have been able to say, Yeah, it was about seventy four degrees Fahrenheit that day. Y- he, y- um, yeah.
1: Sorry to interrupt, but Tom also he witnesses an important event in social history, doesn't he?
2: Yeah, he does. Are you ready for this? Um, are you going to blow Polish my mind? Jump? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I might just be able to sort of bore you utterly. The history of cricket is continuous from 1717 to the present day because of Marchant's diary. He's There are 27 entries in his diary about cricket. And so he's... He's pretty much the first name that we can name in the history of cricket and say, OK, his, cricket was being played in this place at this time, village cricket in Sussex. That's the thing that he's still remembered for in social history. So books on the history of cricket all start with Marchand's diary.
1: That's, fa- Do you know, I already can see three people in my head. Who would love that fact?
2: Yeah, yeah. And so in Sussex, there was this network of village games that was happening. And it got as far as West Sussex, where the Duke of Richmond, uh, a chap called Gordon Lennox, saw cricket being played and started playing it as a gentleman's game. So at Goodwood House, Is the moment where the village game of cricket that's being played by my ancestor and written about by my ancestor reaches the kind of gentlemanly stage. Except my neighbour up the road, Lady Louisa, is the daughter of the Duke of Richmond. And so you can see her house from my window. We're not in Sussex, we're in Mid Wales. So when I found this out, she's walking by with her dogs. I said, Louisa, come and see this. And I showed in Derek Burley's A Social History of English Cricket. I said, look, this paragraph here is about my seven times great-grandfather. And this paragraph here is about your seven times great-grandfather. And somehow we've ended up as neighbours 300 years later. How remarkable. I think so.
1: Things happen for a reason, right?
2: you've shut me up (laughs) yeah yeah I mean but what but we don't know what the reason is no history is sticky I think you know we're not as far from one another as we think we are she is if if life had worked out differently I would be the owner of an estate in Sussex which was valued a few years ago at 35 million pounds and Louisa Do do you need
1: a second wife
2: I'm already on number three, really. <laughs> and, and don't forget we didn't get the money.
1: Damn. Okay, never yeah, mind. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas Louisa is is her 7 times great great grandfather is uh, Charles the Second, um, and she'd have been Princess Louisa. And so fate, you know, the the Stuarts kind of in a way, you know, they l- lost power and became the Dukes of here and there, but not the monarchs. And we, the Marchants were this well to do mid-Sussex family. And we ended up work we I still say we ended up working for at Petworth, he was a land agent at Petworth. And so and so we had involvement with the aristocracy. Um we wouldn't have hung out together like me and Louise's husband do. So so yeah, history's sticky. Some families kind of go through time. One of his son-in-laws was was a bloke. One of Tom's son-in-laws was a chap called Philip Cheel. My granddad's building partner was called Mr. Cheel. 300 years apart.
1: Can I just say, yeah. this coincidence thing is true and it's real. Yeah. I'm going to give you very, very, very briefly, both my great-grandfather's from yeah. the Novobilsky side and from the Langner side, the guy who was in the... Sec- both both were in the Second World War. They met in the First World War in the same platoon.
2: Shut up.
1: My great-grandfather, the Langner great-grandfather, he was the platoon leader. And when my grandfather, uh, Novobilski was dying, he refused to have anybody by him by his bedside except for my mother because she was the daughter of well, by the time he did retired uh, general and that because of that's how much respect he had for him
0: how
2: that's weird. amazing that's amazing
1: and then my parents got married so that that really ticked all the boxes
2: yeah so i so uh, i don't really believe i suppose in coincidences you know we, we're we're all we're locals we're neighbours we're just lose track of that sometimes you, you, you know some some local, some neighborliness can be traced back like for me and louisa 300 years like for you back to the first world war
1: so i've got a question for you do you drink
2: oh my friend oh my friend did i
1: did you okay i, I, I know I... I know that alex so my other podcasting partner my partner in crime uh, she's a big gin drinker and she's going yeah. to be really gutted that we're asking a gin question and she is not here to hear it. Yeah. So talk us through how gin fits into all all of this.
2: So this period, 1714, 1728, is, is the moment that the four-course rotation uh, uh, arrives in, in England from Flanders, and I, I trace the, the kind of roots by which the idea comes into England. And um, so the agricultural revolution in England fills people with misery. And the only they know, the only thing they know about it is that Jethro Tull invented the seed drill. And they only know that because he's got a stupid name and there was a band called Jethro Tull. But it is my view that the four-course rotation would be a loads better band name. And the four-course, it really would. You know, we're a sort of hit. You know, tight harmony. You know, we're there's we're, still
1: time. There's still we're time. like
2: Silk Sonic. You know, we're we're doing kind of. And I keep the door open. Anyway, the four course rotation. This is the time where it arrives in England. Previously, you only have the three course rotation, which which is legume or clover, which is um. Oh, or barley, or if you live on fertile soil, wheat, and then a field fallow. Four-course rotation means that all of the land becomes productive at the same time. And so you have put into the rotation wheat, turnips, legume, and barley. Turnips. <laughs> Uh, 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 which turnips are funny turnips are really important part of the four course rotation because it it means nutrients are being brought up further in the soil people don't necessarily eat the turnips but they give it to their livestock so a hundred years later after tom as the industrial revolution takes off everybody is there's more food available it means that you can do wheat every. Four years, you can maybe even have a wheat field going on, so bread becomes cheaper and more easily available. And in the four-course rotation is barley. Now, gin, which arrives in this country with King William the Third, 1688, because it comes across from Holland, it wasn't made here at all. No, 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 no. Gin comes from The Low Countries, probably from Netherlands, the world's oldest gin distillery is the Bowles Distillery outside Amsterdam. Gin comes over here in about 1688 and William brings it. And William also brings war with France. So no one's allowed to drink brandy anymore. Not many people did drink distilled stuff, actually. Brandy was mostly for medicinal purposes. He rocks up and says, "Yo, I can't do a Dutch accent. Sure, hi. Right. Have a gin, you know, it's cool. Yeah, you know what I mean. Look at my new guitar. Yeah, sure, good gin. <laughs> <clears throat> it's cheap to make. It's made from barley. There's a, there's a, a superfluity of barley because you can now put it into the into the rotation. It's good for military purposes." Dutch courage, right? You know, you you have a knit. Um, he's allowed it to be outside the licensing system. So if you like the previous licensing system, which is um, inns, taverns and beer houses are all licensed and are all paying tax. But gin is tax free. Yeah, Matt, <laughs> that's why you have the great sort of. Hogarth's gin lane. Everyone is lying about in the street a little bit the worse for where gin sweeps through England like this kind of terrible disease, like the opioid problem in in the States at the moment. That was gin, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence. It it, it and it was it was the, the consolation of the poor. It's its character changes when it meets. Um, tonic water in in India, right? When you go to India, the, the 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 Raj, because they're all getting malaria, they have to drink tonic water because it's got quinine in, and quinine is horrible. And they discovered the best thing for it is gin, and so gin by the end of the nineteenth century is a very posh drink, and and so it sort of maps the class history. Now, what is gin? I mean, it's this extraordinary stuff that that that's that's you know that's everywhere. You know, you turn the corner and you've got an artisanal gin distillery. They're like it's like all over the place. But it starts at this moment in the early 18th century, where William is encouraging the growing of barley because that's in the four-course rotation, and you've got a surplus of barley and. Gin is the thing that it turns into.
1: That's quite interesting. I never knew there was so much history to gin. I mean, I'm a vodka drinker personally because obviously the Poles created vodka, not the Russians or the Finnish.
2: Yeah. But it's it's the same thing. The, I mean, the difference is 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 that um, gin has flavouring in it, most famously juniper, which is where Geneva, which is where the name comes, and and, and vodka didn't. I say.
1: No comment. The same thing. No comment. the
2: same thing. Whiskey's the same thing, really. Whiskey's just vodka that's been put in a sherry barrel and left for four years. Oh, I don't know.
1: Some people might get very annoyed with Uh, that. No, I'm kidding. I'm uh,
2: kidding. You know, I'm prepared to have people write in. Let's Uh, let's
1: poke the bear. Right. Okay. let's come back to Tom, because he not only writes about what he does every day, so from the fishing to his pants, obviously.
2: Yeah, he obviously. also
1: writes about politics in his diary. Tell us a little bit about that. What does he think of the politics of that di- that time?
2: So this is the period of the first Jacobite rebellion. So, so as you come out of the Civil War, you know, the war doesn't just end and everything is restored and everything's lovely. You know, this? no, not at all. James II is forced out because he's Catholic. And if there's one thing you can't be, if you're the king of England, is a Catholic. That's still the law. You cannot be a Catholic and the monarch of England. In fact, you have to be, in order to be the monarch, descended from the Electress Sophia of Hanover. By law, you have to be a descendant of the Electress Sophia of Hanover. But a British monarch is anointed by God. Oh yeah, no, of course. And that's why on our coins it says DGFD. It, you know, on all our coins it, 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 it will say Charles III Rex um, by the grace of God defender of the faith. Or the other way around. by Charles III, king defender of the faith by the grace of God. By the grace of God. Monarchs are anointed by God. I, I'm pausing because it's it's beyond belief but it's true he will be anointed there was some fantastic stuff in the daily mail recently which said because they've just made the anointing oil for the coronation and they and the daily mail said it's going to be vegan i'm
1: sorry what it's going
2: to be vegan i see you adjusting your headphones and this is because when <laughs> and this is because when the queen was anointed um, there was um, civet and ambergris and uh, castorium in her anointing oil, whereas his doesn't contain any animal products. It's fantastic the way the male can get on the high horse about anything. Vegan anointing oil, whatever next? Vegan money. Yep, yep whatever next, mate? See so. He's been anointed by God, so he can't be sacked. You you might not like Catholics, but he's still the king. Whatever you say, he's been anointed by God, and you have sworn allegiance to him. And to some extent, his successors, uh, you know, Queen Anne in particular. When Queen Anne dies, bless her heart, and the Hanoverians come, the descendants of the Electress Sophie of Hanover. Who are they? They haven't been anointed by God, and we've sworn to someone anointed by God, our allegiance, and and so they are the Tories, not what we mean by Tories now, but people who were kind of disgusted by the corruption of the previous government, the Whig government, what was called the Cabal, who'd who'd sort of, you know run the government under Anne. These people come in, they're German, they can't speak English, and they haven't been anointed by God. And so what you see is the breakdown of party politics. And when party politics breaks down, when politics breaks down, what is the alternative? The alternative is and has always been civil war. War. War is the only alternative to politics. When people say, War don't like all this politics. I wish there could be no politics. Yeah, you know, how are you going to bring that about? then? War is the only alternative to politics. And so the Civil War, they blew on the ashes of of the English Civil Wars. And it burst back into life, first of all, in 1715. That's when Tom is involved. And his neighbour is a bloke called Henry Campion his neighbour and friend. So again, in the diary, okay, some of the stuff I'm dealing with is circumstantial. And this is why I'm waiting for an academic reading of the diary. Some of the stuff I found is circumstantial. Some of it is my neighbour came round and it was the day of the pretender's birthday. Well, why why would they be celebrating on the date of the pretender's birthday? And we know that Campion fought on the side of the Jacobite rebels and was in exile from 1715 until 1721 uh, and nearly lost everything. So we know that Tom and his wife, in fact, who's, who's this kind of powerful presence in the diary. I wish I had her own. He loves his wife very much. He loves his children very much. We can discern these things from the diary. They are a political unit. They're kind of plotting. There's a Frenchman. They'd never name him, but this Frenchman pops by. They're clearly raising money and exchanging information for the Jacobite pretender, who, who at that time is in France. He, he also his he. he, he he was kind of a member of what was called the non-juring church, which which were people who'd who'd uh, uh, undergone a schism from the main Church of England. Again, because they'd gone. Yeah, but he's anointed by God, man. You can't just sort of carry. He's anointed by God, and so Tom is part of that. You know, <clears throat> imbroglio. It's a good word. <laughs> that 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 embroilment of that time party politics have failed let's have a war
1: i mean we talked about tom his life and very many many aspects of your book and i'm sure there's a lot more that we can go into because well, we want the people to go out and read your book of course so we're gonna we're gonna leave it there but before we do that can you just talk us a little bit about your own life and what your family did and are there any parallels between yours and tom's life at all
2: I mean, yes, one of the things is that all of this was forgotten. All of this was forgotten. my, my grandfather didn't know any of this we- We lost everything, probably on the turn of a card in the eighteen twenties, probably at the gaming tables in Brighton so i could- so my dad liked a bear boy, did he like it then i I'm in this book because I am in all of my books um the diary awaits a full academic reading, and this is the reading of a loving great great, 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 great great grandson. This is about me during the lockdown and during my cancer diagnosis, getting to know a family member. It, it, he was my companion. He was with me during lockdown, so he'd be saying, "Oh, I'm off. You know, I've got a." move dung about and move fish about and we're making faggots and I'm having dinner with Henry Campion I, I was locked in with my wife and stepdaughter at the same time that I'd had a cancer diagnosis and and sort of begun that process I mean one of the most fascinating entries in the diary is in 1727 he writes Henry Campion has gone to London to get the smallpox so yeah So we know that Henry Campion is one of the very first people to get inoculated against smallpox. Forget all the stuff about Edward Jenner. It's a woman called uh, Lady Mary Walkley Montague, who brings um, smallpox inoculation to this country again 300 years ago. 300 years ago, the very first people were beginning to be inoculated against smallpox. And that's in the diary. So that's a real parallel. As as we kind of longed for the appearance of the vaccination, people in the diary were the first people in the in, in recorded history to being inoculated. But 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 it's it's a family mem- memoir. So I'm in the book, and this is the case of all my books. You know, they're not academic books; they're for the general reader. Um, and and i'm a character in my book so so i'm a character in this book as well and and what's happening to me cancer treatment um to some extent the covid experience it, to me seems part of the process i i also get to to do uh <clears throat> i'm not very well uh, um to be honest with you and so i think right right here we go i'm not very well so at the end i'm alright <laughs> all the things I think (laughs) about politics and so on, but my kind of stuff. So it goes from the Great Oxygenation event, 3.7 billion years ago. Most of it's based in mid-Sussex 300 years ago. And then it's the story of how we lost and forgot this. As I say, the estate was sold for 35 million quid a few years ago. And... um, you know, I'm a writer, and I used to be a singer. You know, I, I don't have two beans to rub together. Either. So it's a it's about illness and confinement and and family as well, and and that there was this presence for me during lockdown, which was him and his family and his friends. It's a very personal book.
1: Ian, you're so delightful, and it's been such a pleasure. Shut
2: up shut up (laughs) you're delightful it's (laughs) it's been a pleasure for me
1: i have had such a great time talking to you because usually usually i'm stuck doing something very depressing which is my usual line of work so you have brought a bit of sunshine to my dark day so just thank you so much for joining joining us and hopefully everybody's going to go out and buy this book because we're all like a bit of a personal story at the end of the day and, yeah.
2: Um, yeah. what Which you, book is that, Alina? Uh, one Fine Day, you mean?
1: That one, exactly. Published so remind, by
2: September Publishing.
1: Remember, rem- Remember, remind our listeners the title of your book so they can go to our bookshop yes. or they can go to a local bookstore. Do not go to Amazon and give those evil people a no. cut. So we want to go to a local bookstore or you want to get it from our bookshop because then we get a cut. Ian gets a cut,
2: and Amazon don't get a cut. Oh, you have a bookshop. We do. Oh, that's excellent. Yes, it's called One Fine Day, published by September. One Fine Day. Um, I like a book with a long title, don't you? A proper title. It's called One Fine Day, A Journey Through English Time, Being an Account of the Discovery, Discernment and Disposal of the Diary of Mr Thomas Marchant of First Point in the County of Sussex written in the time of confinement by his seven times great-great-grandson, Mr Ian Marchand, together with a number of illustrations by Mr Julian Dickon.
1: I love it. I love One that. One fine
2: day for sure.
1: That's, that is a total mouthful. But thank ladies and gentlemen, go out and grab yourselves a copy. Thank you, Ian, for joining Helena, us. Elena, thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.